Bible, I want to get to Genesis chapter 3. Um, over the next few weeks in our study of, well, well not really study of Christmas, but can we, we anticipate Christmas upon its arrival. Um, I want to look at really where it all started, the beginning of Christmas. Um, how did we even get to this point of needing a Christmas or a Christ to come as a Messiah? And, and there are going to be a lot of just kind of setups, and we're going to look at Christmas in the beginning in the form of Genesis. So we've got a ton of work, and I'm going to skip all the small talk, and uh, we'll get right into it. Genesis chapter 3, I'm actually not going to read the whole chapter. <laughs> um, I'm going to go through this selectively. I know some of you are very bummed out about that. You wanted me to go through this exegetically, line by line, verse by verse, but that's what we typically do and how we have been doing the Gospel of Mark, but we have paused that series so that we can kind of tune our hearts uh, to an anticipation for us all um, that one day Christ is coming and, and, and we will be with him forever. And what we would call that and what church has celebrated historically is the season of Advent. And so Advent is this anticipation of the coming King. And there was a first Advent and, and it was celebrated in the Gospels when Christ came. And so there was this anticipation that built throughout the Old Testament about a Messiah and a king to come. And so where did that all start? Well, it started here in the book of Genesis. Now, as we read through this the kind of selective uh, text throughout Genesis over the next four or five weeks, it's going to be important to know that the answers to some of the questions you will have as you read through some of these chapters are going to be found towards the end of the book, okay? So, so some of the things that we'll read about a snake and about, you know, weird things like that, we'll find that a lot of the, the, the resolution to it and the resolve of it is in the end of the book. It's why I read from Revelation chapter 22, because you're going to hear that there was an answer to a question that I haven't even asked yet when I read that just a few moments ago. There's going to be a couple things that we're going to look at uh, this morning. We're going to look at just kind of a context in what is happening. And context in which I mean by that is, is the entry of sin, the entry of the fall of man. And, and then what I want to look at after that are the consequences of the entry of sin. And then there's going to be a cure for the entry of sin. Now, as we kind of anticipate Christmas, it is, it is so important for us to understand that this is about Jesus. And so this book is going to, or rather this chapter is going to ask a question about who is the one who is going to come to crush the head of a serpent. And so it's going to build some tension that's going to last for hundreds and thousands of years before the arrival of the Messiah. So that's where we're going to look at this context, the consequences, and the cure. If I were Baptist, I'd get like a pay, pay raise or something because I gave you like three points or something like that. What are we going to be dealing with in the context of this book, and particularly in this chapter in Genesis? We're, we're dealing with a historical event that took place. This is a historical event that was documented by Moses to the children of Israel to kind of uh, shape the, or reshape their thinking from the way of Pharaoh into the way of how God ordained things and how God created and how God designed things to go. Now, what we see here 
is in the beginning that God creates the earth and he does this for his glory so that the answer to why do we have a universe? Why do we have a world? Why are we even existing? The answer lies right here in Genesis and it is so that we bring glory to God. God created everything for his glory. Not that he thought you were some, you know, special, unique, kind person that he just couldn't wait to create, but he did this out of an abundance of his glory so that you and I were created. This world was created that answers all of the tension, that answers all the questions of life. You know, why do we exist? Why do we have this? In, in lies, it is for the glory of God. And to put the icing on the cake, he creates Adam and Eve. He creates mankind. So he creates all of this. And then there's this special type of narrative that's going to take place in chapter three. And I want to look at verse one and particularly look what happens. And so you have perfection, you have beauty, you have no chaos, you have Adam and Eve. They are like, um, it is a beautiful thing going on. There's, there's no conflict in the marriage Somebody should have said amen right there. Like it was, there were no children yet, I don't think. I mean, it was just, it was just Adam and Eve communing, walking, talking with the Lord. It was perfection. It was direct access with God. It was literally talking, communing with the Father. And so something happens and something takes place. This slithering serpent comes into the garden. And in verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the question was essentially this, would they believe God's word as the authority? Would they trust God's plan? Would they trust the way in which God designed things to function? That's the lie that the enemy is coming into the garden. And it's the foundational question that confronts all of us this morning. Will I believe the word of God? Will I believe, am I prepared to trust his plan? Do I believe in the design in which God has for life? It's, it's the same, it's the question that we are being addressed and faced with on every level in our world today. Did God really say, do you really trust the plan of God? Do you really trust the word of God as the authority? And now the sa Satan context here, right? The serpent, remember in Revelation, a lot of these answers like, well, what's the say? What is this snake doing up in here in the garden? Well, if you know the back of the book in Revelation chapter 12, it references the great dragon, that ancient serpent. So who is this person who is slithering in? Who is this intelligent design? Who is this, this crafty little creature that is coming into the garden? It's Satan. And from here, his method is going to be to thwart the plan of God, to thwart the kingdom of God from coming onto earth. And it is going to be through in a way that he will get you to question God's way, God's design, God's authority. 
That's what this serpent is doing. That's the way of Satan. That's the only tactic that Satan has and the only tactic that he's always used from the beginning of time is to get you to distrust the word of God. I can't tell you how many times people come to me and they say, well, what's your, what's your stance on this issue? What's your stance on this issue? And I, and I go, well, well it's not, it doesn't matter what my stance is. I know what I want my stance to be, but whose authority are we trusting in? Are we trusting in the authority of the preacher? I mean, good Lord, I hope not. I mean, thus we'd need another reformation because that was why we had the reformation, because the Pope was the authority. And they started reading the word like, that ain't right. What, what, so so what do we, what, whose authority do we trust? Is it your authority? Honey, you can't even find your keys. Why would I trust you? We, we've got to have a source. And that enemy, that lie of the, the, the serpent in the garden is still slithering his way through our culture, in our life, in the churches, trying to get us to distrust the way and the will of God. Now, notice the serpent comes to the woman and he begins a dialogue. And he says, I have a question for you. Did God really say you shall not eat of any trees in the garden? Did God say that? No. You, you got to go back to chapter two to see what God really said. God just said there's just one tree that you can't eat of. And he says, you will surely die. And then in verse 2, he says this. Well, we may eat, this is Eve here. Well, we may eat of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And then watch what she says. Neither shall you touch it. God didn't say that. God just said, don't eat it, lest you surely die. There's just one specific tree. Don't eat that fruit or you'll die. Now watch what Eve is doing. She is adding onto the prohibition, another prohibition. She's adding layers upon layers about what God said. Suddenly, Satan comes in here, gets you to distrust the word of God, and suddenly you just go crazy. You're like, well, I don't even remember what the Lord said. And so you start adding things and adding things upon this. And then, and then Satan says, well, I can, I can tell you categorically that you will certainly not die. Now, what are we dealing here? What are we dealing with here in this moment where the ser serpent says to Eve that you will surely not die? He's seeking to tempt the woman, again, to distrust God, to say, well, you know what? Um, God doesn't really know what God is doing. It, 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 he's trying to keep you from living out your best life now. God is trying to keep you from living out a really fulfilled, happy life. That's, that's what God is doing. And so if you want to you stay in the cage of the way of God, you continue to do that. Isn't that, I mean, it's, it's so funny because I, I promise you that's exactly what culture, that's exactly what the way of the world is. Oh, if you want to stay in this, you know, um, really ancient way of living, then you go and you do that. But for the rest of us, we'll live our life the way we want to. I'll live my life to what pleases me. What find, what, how can I gain more pleasure? What can I do that will fulfill me? 
And so the serpent is coming in here and he's trying to tell you that if you go beyond the boundaries, because this is what he's saying, you go beyond the boundaries of the Lord, go past those and I've got a better life for you. It's the lie of Satan to keep you from thinking that the way of God is far worse. And so what you need to do is to find your best life now and live it as, as best as you can. He wants you to distrust the authoritative word of God. And it's the same lie that we hear today in our world. And so God comes, or, or, or rather the, the woman she eats of the fruit, the woman saw in verse 6 that the tree was good for, for food. And so what is happening here is that the enemy has appealed to her emotions, appealed to her eyes, appealed to her senses, appealed to the things that are pleasurable. And so the woman listens to the serpent. Adam is there with her, okay? Like he's not out tending to the sheep. He's not out rearranging um, or gathering some flowers for his boo. No, he is literally, he's right there listening. And he falls into it. Why did he fall into it? Because he was led by the woman. The woman is led by the serpent and the man is led by the woman. The woman listens to the serpent. The man listens to his wife and no one listens to the word of God. Now, that is our context. That is the entry of sin. And all of a sudden, now we have brokenness. And now we're going to get what the consequences of this entry of sin is. The serpent promises about their eyes being open was, okay, was just half, half truth, all right? Now, <clears throat> they do something really silly. They realize that now they're naked, and they think that's the problem. Realizing that they are naked, and I know like if you're a child in here, you're like, what in the heck is this preacher talking about being naked? And so parents, you got a lot of explaining to do, and I'll leave you to it. They realize they're naked. And so what do they do? It's silly. They cover themselves with a fig leaf. As if that is going to result... And, 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 so, and so God comes in and they hear God hustling and they hear God like coming through the garden and, and so they try to hide. Isn't that what we do? It, it, that when, we, when, we are, when, we are, when we sin, when we know we've done something that is in opposition to the way and the will of God, we, we do some of these things right here. We, we, we either go hiding and we think that as soon as I cover it up, as soon as I make, you know, clean my mess, everything's going to be all right. Well, everything's not all right until you're lying in bed at night with guilt and shame. And so they introduce into the world a works-based theology. If I can cover myself up, if I can do this, if I can do that, then, <laughs> then we can trick God. It's amazing, isn't it? It's so fascinating how some of us, we think we can trick God into thinking that, you know what, if I can just cover this up, if I can just go hide and finish my sin and, and then just kind of, you know, just clean the mess up myself and, you know, God, he, 
we'll, we'll be, we're going to be okay. It's, it's what, it, it, isn't that what children do? My, how we have grown up, yet we're nothing, like, like we're still like our children in so many ways. When, when you go sin, you're, you're just, you got to go hide and, and, and then you're going to try to cover it up. And, and God realizes that and God sees and God, God knows what's happening and God, he calls them out. And I, I, you know, I just find a lot of comfort in this, that God calls them and he, and he goes and to go find them and he knows what they have done and he knows that they're trying to get rid of the evidence. He knows that they're trying to cover themselves up here and it's quite pathetic in what they are doing. But it is what Romans chapter 8, I believe, or chapter 1 would say is that they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They exchanged the truth of God for what felt right, for what is a lie. And isn't that the tragedy of man? The tragedy of man is that is not simply that we break the law of God, but now we have been wrecked or we have been spoiled from all that God has created for us. And in our perilous conditions, we try to fix, we try to cover, we try to, we try to cover up all the things that we have done. And before they're banished from the garden, in which we will get to in just a moment, God comes out and he seeks them in verse number eight. Look what he says. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Where, where did you, where, where'd y'all go? Why, why did you do this? You had communion with God. You had direct access with the creator of the universe. You were literally walking with God. What, what did you, what are, Why? That's what, now let me tell you something a little bit about my, I don't want to say sick personality, but if, if I'm the writer of this story, and we all should just say, thank God that I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm canceling, like I'm introducing cancel culture, and I am wiping everyone off the face of the planet, and I'm going to start over. I don't want to. I want to, like, I want people to worship me. I want people to know what I've done. And so they have this choice on the table. They fall into it. And then God goes and he finds them and he calls out to them. And, I, and I, you got to imagine what, what they're thinking. Like, I don't, I don't want to talk to him. You know, he may talk to us about stuff that we don't want to talk about. He may see me as exposed in my sin. He may, he, may find, he may see the true person that I really am. And I love, like, isn't that like, and, and I would just suggest that this is the reason why people don't want to come to church because they're scared that we may talk about their stuff. But the, was, this the, was God like judgmental in how he talked to them? Sure, there was judgment in it. 
But surely you've got to see that there was so much grace and so much mercy wrapped into what God was doing in this moment that God could have gone down into the garden with a sword and said, what y'all do to my garden? And wipe them jokers off the face of the planet. The, the fact that God did not do that is God displaying his mercy towards them. And, that, and, and so that's what the gospel does to us. It exposes us that while we were yet sinners, then the grace and mercy is he died for you. And so, so he's going to unwrap many things about their consequences. And he's going to tell them, skip down to verse 15. Look what he says, I will put enmity, there's going to be conflict between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. You then will notice he's going to go into the singular right here, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Here's the question that's being presented to us that is going to create this anticipation for the next um, uh, thousands of years. Who is the he? Who is he that is going to crush the head of the serpent? What is the reason why we need the coming of the Messiah? What is the reason that we celebrate Christmas? Who is the he that is going to come in and crush the head of the serpent? It's the first gospel message that we find in this book that we call the Bible. That one day there will be one who is greater than this first Adam, the one who blew it in the garden because he listened to his wife, who listened to the, to the serpent. There's going to be a greater Adam that will come and crush the head of the serpent. And so watch what the consequences are. So he tells the woman that I'm going to put enmity uh, between you, or he tells this to Adam, between you and the spouse. So now you are in an arena of conflict with your spouse. Watch that they were once like it was perfect love. It was great love. It was looking into each other's eyes, all googly eyes, and telling them, you're perfect for me. Oh, you are my one. Oh, you are my only one. I'll whisper sweet nothings into your ear, which is kind of awkward, isn't it? And so this is what they had, and this is then what is destroyed. Now they create this arena of conflict, this arena to where now your marriage is going to be a struggle. Now your marriage is something you're going to have to fight for. Now it's a battlefield. And then he tells the woman that now you will have this pain in childbearing. And, and no doubt that there will be pain in childbearing. But he's not just referencing to the, the process. But he's referencing like the pain of bringing children into a broken and fallen world. Like, I can't help but to wonder, like, when my children, will my children follow the Lord? What will my children be faced with that I wasn't faced with? What new kind of lie from the enemy are they going to be dealt with that I wasn't dealt with? It's this conflict now that, that now you have children, you bring them into this world. Now you have to deal with all of life's trauma that is associated with your children. And I don't mean that bad. It's just what happens. 
And this is yet another consequence of sin. And it really answers the question of why is our world the way that it is? Why is there sin? Why are there consequences? Why is there such suffering? Why is there, like, why do we have to worry for our children to make the right decision? Why do we have to do all of these things? Well, it's a result of the consequence of sin entering into the world. And then he goes into the he. Now, from here, what the Bible is going to do is kind of set the act or set the role of the whole book to surround itself around the he. Who is the he that will crush the serpent? And for the next, you know, several books, it's all about the he. He is the one who will come and crush the head of the serpent. And who is the he? It's the Lord. It's the Messiah. It's the king. It's the one who will rule us of our oppression. It's the one who will have the government upon his shoulders. That is who the he is that he's referring to. It's very prophetic in nature in which the Lord speaks to these people and he speaks to the serpent and tells him, your days are numbered because he will crush your head and he will bruise and you will bruise his heel. And from here, Satan is going to seek to destroy the plan that God has set for men and women. That once they are banished from the garden, Satan will try to thwart the kingdom of God's rule and reign by setting the tone of the one lie. That God's ways are just restrictions. And they're not for your good and they do not bring freedom And it is this lie that men and women will fall to book after book, chapter after chapter in this gospel, in this Bible. And then he creates the cure. Now, the cure is, how do we gain access back to the garden? All right, that's the question we're going to ask ourselves. How do we gain access back to the garden? How do we gain access back to communing with God, walking and talking to God? While in the meantime, that Romans chapter eight tells us that the earth is groaning and and travailing and waiting for the redemption of the sons of man. This is the subplot that comes into this, this story that the second Adam, the first Adam that flunked the test couldn't get it done, the second Adam will come and he will restore back the Garden of Eden for all of us. That this, like, like think about this. So down in, chap- in verse 24, I believe, like, like cherubim, seraphim, like the angels come and they have the flaming sword so no one gets back into the garden, right? Like you read down there and you see like, oh, that's pretty cool. Who's got the flaming sword? But, but that's, not, that's not a good thing. That's, that's, you've been denied access with communing to God. So the question is, who can endure the flaming sword? 
Who can in, endure and, and go back and endure the flaming sword that will allow us to go back into the garden so that we can have that communing access, so that we can walk and we can talk with God? Who can do that? Prophetically speaking throughout the Bible, they will be referencing that there will be one who will come and who will be crushed on our behalf. Who is that? Who is the Bible pointing to? Jesus. You know what the Bible is all about? Yeah, you know what? That's the answer nine out of ten times. Right? It's not about how you can have a better life. It's not about how you can have more success and more gain and more fame and more, like more money. It's, it's, it's pointing us back to the main character, and his name is Jesus. Genesis chapter 3, and the very beginning at the fall of man, points you directly, not at how lousy you are, not at how you can gain more uh, access with, with influence and not how great you can be as a person, how successful you'll be. The point of this is that it wants you to point your soul back to the one who can rid you of your shame, rid you of your guilt who can give you healing from that, well, I've just got to go hide. Who is the one that can do that? It's Jesus. Who can give us access to the garden? In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree that the garden is protected so that Adam and Eve cannot get back in. And thus, Jesus endures the flaming sword and gives us direct access back into the garden of life so that where we will have no shame and guilt and we can have direct access back to the Father. That's what this is about. This story is about and that is our cure. We who have no mechanism whatsoever in ourselves to gain entry back into the garden, we find that as we trust Christ, we no longer choose to live on the boundaries that he has said. We no longer choose to buy into the lie of the enemy that his way is not right for us. We no longer give in to the lie of the enemy that says that he's just that Jesus or God's word is just trying to keep us and keep everything that's good away from us. Like I want to be able to cheat when I can. I want to be able to sleep around when I can. I want to be able to lie when I can. I want to be able to do what I want to do. And that's what the lie is. I don't want all that restrictive stuff. And he gave them this choice, and they allowed themselves to choose that they thought their way was better, which is kind of fascinating, isn't it, that they had the right to choose this path. Many of us and many of you, including myself, we worship the fact that we get to choose. And I want to caution you on that. The fact that they were able to choose is what got us in this mess. So, yes, yeah, celebrate. God gave us the right to choose. But make no mistake about it. Your choice 
can destroy you. I would just caution us on that, like this celebration and this, and this huge, like, oh, choice, choice, choice. It's such an American idea that's kind of seeped into the culture of our churches. Yeah, God gives us this ability to choose, but do not worship that ability. That ability to choose is what destroyed, is what led sin into the world. And here they are. They've got this choice right before them. They choose their way over God's way. And I love this because God comes down and he calls them out. And he calls them out and he looks at them and their silliness and this pathetic attempt to cover themselves. And I want you to see the grace and the mercy. And I want you to see the gospel in this. And I want you to see the first sacrifice that God does in order to cover the sins of his people was not that he looked at them and said, you know what, I think that fig leaf would be good enough for you. I, I appreciate you covering yourself up. But God himself destroys their works theology and takes off their fig leaves. And we see the first sacrifice where God takes the skin of an animal and clothes them. It, I, I, I can't over, I can't over like, state this. This is the grace and mercy of Jesus. And this is exactly what Jesus Christ has come to do for all of us. Not to point you out in your shame, not to point you out in your guilt, and let you sit there and simmer in it. Yeah, he's going to call you out but he doesn't let you sit in your guilt and shame. One day, there would be a lamb of God that would come and his blood would be shed and there would be no longer a need for any other atoning sacrifice from another animal because he would be the ultimate sacrifice for us and he would be that fulfillment of the Garden of Eden, of the skin that covered them. He would be that. He would be the one that endured the flaming sword that allows us to have direct access to God. That one day when we go into Revelation chapter 22 that we read earlier, remember the answers are in the back of the book. Where's the tree of life now? Who has access? Who's given us access? And where's the throne of God at? It's right there. Eden has been restored, and we have direct access to it. All you have to do is trust in Jesus. And I wonder if you are confident today that when God comes to us in all power, in all glory, in the person of Jesus, that you will be included in the company of the saints. And only because you came to him and you said, Lord Jesus Christ, I admit it is not my family, it is not my spouse, it is not my circumstances, it's just me. I am ashamed, I'm naked, and I need you, Jesus. I've been hiding way too long, and I confess you as my king. I wonder how many of us will be in that company of heavens and will be in that throne room of God singing with the angels where the tree of life is, where the throne of God is, where the lamb of God is seated.
And, and the way you're there is by, by trusting Jesus. The way you're there is not by trusting in your ability. It is by you coming out and saying, I'm naked, I've sinned. And the only remedy is Jesus Christ.